0: Morning again. Uh, May first, 2016, was when I first started uh, over in the Spanish ministry. So uh, we're at May second, 2001. Is that is that five years? That's five years. Um, the uh, <laughs> they very graciously. Uh, called us to come, and that was uh, great, and uh, you know, they didn't know what they were getting into, and um, you ask them after four years, does it get any better, and they'll say no, uh, but through it all, they've learned to grow in patience, and um, they, they've become better Christians through the trials and tribulations of uh, me being involved in their lives, uh, so it's a, a blessing to get to be involved in this church, um, both on the Spanish side and on the English side now. Uh, it's funny how uh, God moves and works and um get to be here. We're in chapter 20 of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. We'll be reading from verse 17 all the way to verse 28. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, the Word of God says, As Jesus was about to go up, to Jerusalem he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said to them behold we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him and on the third day he will be raised up then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons bowing down and making a request of him, and he said to her, "What do you wish?" She said to him, "Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and, on, and one on your left." And Jesus answered, "You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I am about to drink?" And they said to him, "We are able." And he said to them, "My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right, right and on my left." This is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant." And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for this passage. I pray now as we meditate on it, as we look at it, that the Holy Spirit would work in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. Father, not just to hear, but to put into practice. We know it's your will that we become holy as you are holy. And we do this by becoming more of the image of Christ and less like ourselves. And that happens through putting in practice your word. Father, I pray now that whatever is my opinion, we can quickly forget and just meditate on your word throughout this week and practice it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had a time in your life where maybe you ordered something or you planned an event or you thought about uh, doing something and your expectation of that thing was here and the reality of that situation was like a lot lower? Have you ever had that, Uh, maybe you went to a restaurant and you were picturing a certain plate of food and when they brought it and they placed it before you, like. It's not really looking like something that you were wanting. And then when you start to taste it, you're like, you know, it's it's not really. And then on top of that, they give you the bill, right? You know, uh, you had to pay for that thing. Or maybe you saw in the vacation catalog this beach and it's all, I mean, it's just white sandy beaches. There's nobody on there. Uh, It it would just be you. Just be you all by yourself. And uh, you thought, this is what I need. These are vacations that I need. and you get there, and it's just got a ton of people on the beach. I mean, you can't even put a towel down. There's people in sand getting. Your expectation was up here, and the reality of that situation was totally different. Here we have the situation where uh, maybe someone's requesting something that they really don't know everything that they're requesting. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has stopped on the other side of Jordan. He was teaching. He was teach. Uh, he was teaching, and then he was uh, healing. And now he's. A little bit closer to Jerusalem and we see as he's moving closer that he's kind of defining for uh, his disciples what it's going to be to be Christ like what, what does it mean to be a Christian well what is it to be Christ like what's to be the image of Christ and that has to do with acting like being like Christ how what Christ would do how he would act how he would behave and he's being very specific in what he's going to describe to them of what it is, he's going to set the standard pretty high. Uh, the first thing that we see is that Jesus sets the standard for what it's to be Christ like, what it means to be Christ like. And he starts this in verse 17. He says, uh, As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way, uh, said to them, So here's Jesus. He is, uh, Jerusalem is up on the mountain, so it doesn't matter what direction you're coming from, at a certain point you start to go up, up to the city. And so they're at a, at a certain place where they have come, and now they're close to the mountain where they're going to start ascending, going up to Jerusalem. And as they're there, it seems like that, from the other passages that we've read, that maybe they're in a caravan, they're all going to to celebrate Passover, they're maybe in a caravan coming down from Galilee, but Jesus Brings aside his twelve disciples, and it says specifically that they're on their way. Now, the, the road way means that uh, it can be like a a road, but it can also mean like a certain destination. And, and there's already like a certain uh, hinting off that it's not just to go to Jerusalem, and it's not just to go up to Jerusalem, but he's eventually going to go up onto the cross. This this idea of ascending, of going up, is not just to Jerusalem. That's not the final destination. He will eventually go up onto the cross. And he pulls the disciples aside because he's on this way. He is marching towards this destination. It's not like he's trying to get around it. It's not like he doesn't know what's about to happen. And he tells them in verse 18, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. So here's this aspect that he's going up and he's going to be delivered. Now, there's two things involved in this delivery because it's not like he's delivering himself. It's rather a passive. And God ultimately is delivering him up. He's going to die for our sins. Uh, But also there's going to be an aspect of betrayal that's going to happen. One of his own will betray him, and they're going to turn him in specifically to chief priests and scribes. This is a a very interesting group of people that they're going to be turning him into. The chief priests and scribes have this uh, responsibility to teach the people. I mean, they've dedicated a whole career to knowing God, and their responsibility is not just to know God, but to teach others to know God, to love God, to follow God, to obey God. But uh, they are going to receive him for the purpose of to turn him over, to condemn him to death. And uh, verse 19, will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So they're here they're going to take the one who Christ has given, and they're going to condemn him to death to be handed over. So we got two groups. We got the Jews are involved in this, uh, his own people. Uh, but to add a little bit of insult to the situation, it's not just the Jews are going to kill him, but they're going to turn him over to the Gentiles. Now, it's it's bad to be condemned to death by your own people. That, that's bad. But it's almost like worse to condemn you to death and turn you over to the people who are supposedly, I guess, like the enemies per se to Rome the ones who, who were there in charge. I mean, it kind of adds just a little bit more insult to the situation. And that's what they're going to do. Now, as we look at this, our eyes are probably attached to, they looked at, they focused on this aspect of uh, to mock, to scourge, to crucify him. And, and in a very real sense, the, the prophecy that he's telling them is getting a little bit clearer. He's already talked about he's going to be turned over, but now there's this aspect that the Gentiles will be involved, there's going to be mocking, there's going to be scourging, he's going to be whipped, and then they're eventually crucifying. Uh, but these are not the main verbs of, of the sentence. The main verb is that they're going to be delivered, and he will be raised up. That, that's the main verb, he will raise up. Uh, as we look at that, we might, our eyes might want to focus on the negative aspect. But Jesus is saying, it's not the negative aspect. It's this aspect of being raised up of a resurrection. He, he will live again. Now, we might think, well, it, it's kind of easy for him to go to his death because uh, he knows he's about to live again in three days. Uh, so, yeah, this is a, a no-brainer for him. It, it's nothing for him to go get uh, mocked at. It's nothing for him to go get uh, whipped. And to crucify, he's going he's gonna to come back to life. But if we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, then we have that hope of living again, too. So really, we should also have that same hope that we dismiss Jesus as having, right? Like, yeah, it's okay for Him to go and die because He's God and He's gonna live again. But if we've believed in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, then we've got that hope. That's the argument Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, where he talks about the importance of Jesus raising from the dead. And this fact that He's risen from the dead gives us hope, a true hope. Now, as we look at this, as he sets this standard for what it's like to be Christ-like, what it means to follow after him, what it means to take up his cross, the standard is not a hypothetical standard, right? He's not like hypothetically thinking you must die, hypothetically think, uh, saying uh, you might encounter troubles, but we all know there's not going to be any trouble. He is on his way going up to Jerusalem, going up to die. He's on his way. That's what it says. He's going up. He's already ascending. He's already taking steps up, up, up higher to get to Jerusalem. So he's not talking about a hypothetical standard, but he's talking about a real giving your life for others. It's sometimes, you know, we'll say uh, you have to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And we think about that in our context of being in Texas in nice padded chairs and AC. And we say, oh, yes, yes, I'll. I'm going to follow Jesus too. And in our mind, it's more hypothetical, like, yeah, we'll do that. It is suffering for the Lord here. But it's not a hypothetical standard. It's what he is doing. Now, as he's he's doing this, as he's going up, there will be people who uh, will betray him, his own people. In fact, uh, John 1.11 says, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him they turned them in. Can you imagine? He's on this, uh, on this way to Jerusalem, and he pulls his disciples aside. Part of his disciples is Judas. And he's saying to them, he's, he's telling them what's about to happen, and he's one of the ones that is listening, and he's about to betray them. This is something important to think about because uh, as we're following Christ, there'll be many who also look like they're following Christ, but they have a different agenda. It's not to glorify Christ. It's not that they look more like Christ and less like themselves. But they maybe have another standard. Maybe it's a a social standard. Maybe it's it's a cultural aspect of church. They they like the idea of churchness, a place to dress up and sing songs. I don't know why they would like that. Uh, But they don't really are looking to follow after Christ. They just like the cultural aspect of it, the connections that they can make and so forth. And there will be, as you follow Christ, there will be those who will betray you because they're not following the same Christ. They have their own agendas, and that's what's going to happen to Jesus. Now, following Christ involves uh, life, involves life. Like I said before, maybe our eyes got focused on those uh, infinitives there, uh, the infinitive to, to mock and scourge and to crucify him. But those are just uh, there to be able to understand that he will be raised up. That's the main part. There's life in Jesus. That's the focus is that he's going to be raised up. There's life. Many times we get kind of stuck on this aspect of following Christ and the the harshness, the hard aspect of following, the suffering that's involved. But there's life in Christ. And apart from Christ, there is no life. One of the things that the church does is it's involved in people's lives to help them to live now. Uh, what does it mean to have a good marriage? What does it mean to have a marriage that glorifies God? What does it mean to have uh, raised children that love the Lord? We, we try in the church to help show people how to live now. But another thing the church does is it should be involved in helping people for the day that they die. And I know that sounds very pessimistic. Like, who wants to talk about that, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that unless Jesus Christ comes and raptures his church, 100% of us will die. 100% of us will be before God one day. And the thing is, is we have to see if we're ready for that. One of the things that the pandemic showed is that the church hasn't done a very good job of preparing people for death. We're all so ready to go hide and go away and say, I'm loving my neighbor by not talking to them at all. If that neighbor dies without the gospel they're 100% guaranteed to go to hell. You know? In a way, this aspect that Christ brings up, he brings life. And there's an aspect that the church needs to be doing is, is sharing that life with people. And if you need to do it through a screen door, a glass door, through a window, FaceTime it. But you got to find a way to share because there is life in him. And apart from him, there is no life. So there's the standard of of what's it like to be Christlike. Now, we see that Mrs. Zebedee, she's going to try to re- renegotiate the terms of Christlikeness. She she didn't quite like it. She heard what Jesus said and she wants to give a counteroffer to see if maybe she can make it a little bit better. And we see that in verses 20 through 24. In fact, it says there in verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. In, in, a, in a way, this really shocks the reader. Like, where in the world did this mother come from? Where, how does she appear here? Like, has, has she been walking with him this whole time? Or, or was she already in Jerusalem and she saw a caravan and she said, Ah, oh, there's, there's Jesus. And she decided to come down from Jerusalem and then walk back up with him. Like, in a way, it it kind of shocks us, like, what is she doing there with this group of people? And and it doesn't matter how you want to take it. You can take it as she's part of the caravan, or you can take it as she was already in Jerusalem. But when you compare it to Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, where Jesus is talking about those who follow him must leave mother and father, there's at least two disciples that are following Jesus that brought their mom along with them. Like, I don't know if they just didn't like Jesus cooking. Like, and they wanted their mom's pancakes or whatever. I'm not sure how that went along. But here they're going to follow Jesus, but they're bringing mommy along with them. I mean, it's, it's kind of ironic, the situation that they're doing this. But here they have, here they have their mother, and their mother is now is going to make a request. And as it says there in the verse, she, she comes down, bowing down. That, that word? Is, a, uh, is an action that a person would do that shows a complete dependence on the person who's being bowed down to. So what she's doing is not just like in her heart saying, I surrender all, you know, but she is showing those who are around her that she completely depends upon Christ. And not only her, but it says in the text that she's brought her sons to, and they're also just down on the floor showing a complete dependence on Christ. Isn't that great? Isn't that special? If the verse stopped right there, it'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? But the verse doesn't stop there at all. She wants to request something of him. So he asked her, what do you wish? What is your desire? What's happening in your heart? What is it that you want to see done? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom... These two sons of mine may sit on, on your right and one on your left. It's an uh, interesting uh, demand that she wants because she is, she is saying, she's not saying, you know, this is what I hope that will happen. She wants him now at that point to command, to order, like to say this is a decree, this is what's going to happen. And, and it's that her sons be on either side It's kind of a a funny thing, depending on how you look at it. But that same terminology on your right hand and on your left hand of of Jesus is also used of the two thieves that were crucified by Jesus. Uh, So she doesn't uh, realize what it means to be associated with Jesus. She's asking for something that she doesn't have a clue about. And that's what Jesus will say to her. Verse 22. But Jesus answered... You do not know what you are asking. You don't have a clue. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? So He's using uh, a figure of speech uh, to say that, can you identify with the same thing that I'm going to identify? Can you participate in the same things that I'm going to participate? Can, can you do this? A- and they answer back to him and said, we are able. Interesting. How the conversation switched. The mother comes making this request. She's got this request for her two sons, but now the sons are just eager to answer. it. It's like they don't even stop to contemplate what it means to be drinking of the same cup. They don't stop to even think of, can we really do this? We've already been promised some thrones. We've already been promised eternal life. Let's just leave it there. I don't know what it means to drink of the cup. He hasn't really specified this. He hasn't really described this. So let's just leave it right there and say, no, I can't. They don't. They're like, yeah, we can do this. There's no problem at all. We got this. It says there in verse 23, uh, verse 23, he said to them, my cup, you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those who have been prepared by my father. So Jesus tells that there is a plan that God has. God has a plan in his omniscient where he is planning to reward certain people according to certain things. And that is for God to determine that is not for him. But that they will have to partake in the sufferings of Christ. That, that's what they're going to have to do. And verse 20, uh, 24, after hearing this, the ten became indignant with the uh, two brothers. The other ten, they hear this request. I mean, you can see the image. There's the mom with the two sons bowed before Jesus. I mean, it's not like something done secretively, right? Everybody can see this, even though he's come apart with his disciples. Everyone can see what has happened. And they've heard the request, and they become angry. Something inside of them arouses, and it's, and it's not something pleasant. They're angry at the two brothers, and this aspect that they're angry at the two brothers kind of uh, points off that maybe the two brothers are more involved in this than just the mother. I mean, they could have maybe uh, corrected their mom. Like, no, mom, uh, that's not how the kingdom of heaven works. Uh, Jesus already said in, in Matthew uh, chapter 18, 3-5, uh, that it's, it's like the, king, the kingdom of heaven is like these children. It's something very humble. It's not something very boastful. Or they could have said, no, mom, uh, Jesus invites children to come to him, but then uh, when rich, moral people try to come to him, he kind of shoes them off, and they take off, and, and he doesn't go chasing after them. Or he could have said, uh, no, mom, this the last shall be first. No, don't, don't put us out there like that. Or, or they could have talked about the, the, the gracious landlord who had this vineyard and how he invited people to come work, and he paid them all the same. They could have corrected their mother. And you might be saying, no, no, they couldn't have corrected their mother. Oh, they should have. Because he has just told them that you have to love him more than family. So they should have corrected, but they stayed silent. They wanted to see if this would work. And then when given the opportunity to answer, they said, yes, we can do this. No, they should have told their mom, no, Jesus has already promised us groans. We don't need any more honor. That's good enough. We're satisfied with whatever God would give us. But no, they let her talk and see what's going to happen. As we look at this, in this section where the mother, where Mrs. Zebedee tries to renegotiate what it's like to be Christ-like, her actions don't match her attitude. Her, her actions look fantastic. I mean, she's just bowing down Before Jesus, it looks like she has this complete dependence on him. But her attitude is that her kids deserve more. Her kids should get another special honor. Now, the problem is not that she loves her kids. That's not the problem. The problem is that she loves her kids more than God's will and God's plan and God's purpose. And that's the problem. When we decide to put family above what God wants when we decide to put God second to the blessings that He's given us. There's the problem. That's what she's doing. She loves her kids more than she loves God's will and God's purposes. And the other thing that she's doing is that she wants the glory without the suffering. She's trying to ensure that her kids will have the glory without the suffering. Jesus had already said in Matthew sixteen twenty four. then Jesus said to His disciples, Anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what it's defined to be Christ-like. And she wants to kind of skirt tail around that and say, just go ahead and order this to be happening. She has no idea how her kids' lives are going to end. James gets killed with a sword there in Acts chapter 12. John gets put into the island of Patmos. And we don't know how he dies specifically, maybe old age. But she's already assuming that they're going to be faithful all the way to the end. And she doesn't know that that's going to happen. But she wants the glory without the suffering. <coughs> now, not only this, but this brings up a question that if following after Christ involves suffering, isn't it kind of morally irresponsible to encourage people to follow after Christ? If going after Christ, if accepting Christ as your Savior Involves suffering, then isn't it morally irresponsible to suggest somebody to leave the world and follow after him? I mean, it would almost seem morally irresponsible to give the gospel to somebody and say, hey, forget everything and go after him. You're going to have a life of suffering. Enjoy. You know, is this morally irresponsible? And we have to ask this question because in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, it says, For to you has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. To suffer, it's part of the aspect of following after Christ. We would have to say that it would be morally irresponsible only if living contrary to God, which would mean living for this world system, would be equal or better than suffering for God. It would be morally irresponsible if living for this world would be equal or better than suffering for God. And you say, well, that, it does sound a lot better. And we could use different arguments. We can use an ontological argument of being. We can use a teleological argument uh, saying that, uh, talking about the ends. Or we can talk about moral arguments. But at the end of the day, it ends up having to be a step of faith. Do you believe that suffering for God is better than all the pleasures the world can give you? That's the dilemma that the young rich ruler had, wasn't it? I mean, he had been so moral. He had been so obedient to his parents, so obedient to the law. And Jesus tells him, sell everything you have and come follow me. And he weighed his things against Jesus. And he said Jesus was wanting. It lacked. And he decided to go after his things ends up coming down to an aspect of faith. Are you willing to believe that God is better, that he's more than enough, that he is sufficient, that even suffering for him is better than all the pleasures that this world can offer you? That's where most of us start to kind of disappear a little bit. Say, no, I don't know if I'm willing to give up everything to follow him. I'm not willing to give everything that I have for him. Now, it's not morally responsible. We see that the disciples are angered. They're, they're angry. They're upset. It, it says there um, in, in the New Daniel translation that they are ticked off with the two brothers. They, I mean, they are just ticked off at them. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why in the world are they upset? And, and this whole issue of rewards has been going on for a while now. I mean, you remember in chapter 18, they were, um, they were talking about how to become the greatest in the kingdom. And that's when Jesus brought the children and talked about that. So since chapter 18, Jesus has been talking about this. And it seems like the two brothers still haven't gotten it. it and it seems maybe that the other 12, the other 10, haven't gotten it either. That there's still this desire to want to be first place in the kingdom. And the audacity... <laughs> For them to talk to their mom about to bow down before Jesus and request this, it angers them. They're ticked off with the two brothers, and specifically the two brothers, which makes me think that the two brothers had more to do with it than their mom. Why is this happening? Let's go to James chapter 1 really quickly. James chapter 1, uh, sorry, James chapter 4, verse 1. James is writing, and he says, uh, James 4.1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? That word for pleasures is the word for passions. What a person is passionate about, what they desire, what they want. When uh, my passions conflict with uh, my wife's passions, then there's a quarrel, there's a problem, right? Right? Think about uh, late at night, bring Hannah home from the hospital, and uh, Hannah starts to cry and, you know, needs something, diaper change, something. Um, My passion is to act like I don't hear it, (laughs) you know? Maybe she'll hear it and then, like, you know, and hit her so that she wakes up. If her passion is also to sleep, then there's going to be a conflict, right? They're going, Pwosh. you never wake up, you know, oh, blah, blah, blah. When there's battling conflicts between people. Now, you think about a marriage, you think about anything, any relationship, where there's conflicts that happen. When uh, on one side, one says, I deserve the right or the left side of Jesus. And the other to say, no, you don't. I deserve it. There's going to be a conflict. What is what is motivating this conflict? What is motivating this this thing in their life? It's it's their own pride that their desires, their passions, are being threatened. And whenever your passion or your desire gets threatened, then it starts to get heated and it starts to give you conflict. If your passion and your desire is to glorify God, nothing can threaten that. Nothing can threaten that. But say your passion, what, say your, your, your passion, your desire is to rest. And um, you've got to wash the dishes. Dumb dog needs to be taken out. Uh, X, Y, Z, somebody calls you and they, they have got an emergency and they want you to come quickly. But your desire, your passion is to rest right then. It will cause a conflict. You'll show up. What do you want? Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Off you go because it's threatening what you want, your passion. Whenever we have a passion for things that are not God himself, when other things come into that, we'll feel very threatened. We'll start to quarrel. We'll start to fight. Now, what does Jesus do about this? Jesus reestablishes himself as a standard. That's what he does. He's he's not going (laughs) to entertain uh, what Mrs. Zebedee has requested. He's going to reestablish himself. He's heard her request and he's like uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's focus a little bit here. It, verse 25, but Jesus called to himself and said so he calls them and there they are and he says you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So this is how just the world works. This is how the world works. You have government authorities. You have people, and they exercise rule, lordship, authority. That, this is what they do. And he says, "It's not this way among you." I don't know if you've seen the Walt Disney version of Cinderella, but um, there's this moment where uh, Cinderella's dress has gotten all torn up by the stepsisters You remember? And, uh, and, and the mice are, are there, and they're sad. And Jack-Jack says, you know what? Cinderella's not going to go to the ball. And all the mice go, what, what, You know, you remember the, the scene? I can imagine that the disciples are going, what, What do you mean the kingdom of heaven is not like, like this? What do you mean it's not about authority and ruling and exercising dominion and lordship over people? That's, that's what it's all about. You're telling me it's not like that at all? And Jesus it's not. In fact, he he shocks them even more. He says, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. he takes it down even further. The way up is the way down. You know, that doesn't make any sense. But that's not the way that God has established it. That's what he is he's set for. Now, we look at this, he's calling them to be slaves of one another, to serve. And he says, verse 28 just as the Son of Man. Just as the Son of Man? It, it, it implies that he's not asking of them something he hasn't done himself. He's not inviting them to take a road that he hasn't walked. It means just as what he's doing, he's asking them to do. And what he's asking them to do is this aspect of serving. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Looking at that word ransom, uh, ransom usually has the idea of paying something, uh, like if somebody's kidnapped, per se, or or, um, something's taken, and you have to pay a ransom to get it freed get the person free. And uh, this has caused a lot of theological debate over the years as to who is Jesus ransoming? Uh, Who is being ransomed? Who is the payment being made to? And and there's a couple different options as to who the payment is being made to. Some have argued that maybe he's making this payment to Satan. Now, the idea is that um, since uh, Satan is the god of this world, and uh, because we are born into the kingdom of darkness rather than to the kingdom of the light of his son, therefore, if you're going to be transferred over the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, something had to happen. And so maybe Christ, when he's ransoming, he, he's paying, maybe he's paying Satan off so that he can rescue your soul. Uh, that's one idea. I, I would suggest you not to hold to that idea. Uh, hopefully, you weren't thinking, yeah, that's a good idea. Don't. don't. Uh, because God doesn't owe Satan anything. God is sovereign on top of Satan. He doesn't owe him a thing. And, and there's nothing that Satan can do. If you've see, seen the line in The Witch of the Wardrobe, if you read the story, uh, you remember that it's almost like is having to pay the witch for the, the uh, traitor trade act that uh, Edmund did. It's not that at all. It's not paying Satan. Rather, it's it's appeasing god's wrath it's appeasing god's wrath sin deserves death and god's wrath is on those who are sinners when christ died he appeased god's wrath 1 john 22 2. he was our propitiation the aspect of propitiation is that he took upon god's wrath and offers us his righteousness and that's what he did it's not satan that's being paid but it's god's justice his righteousness being satisfied. When he ransoms, he's paid so that God will be satisfied, his righteous met, righteousness met, so that we can appear before God. That, that's what's happened here. And he's done this through death. Now, we might think about this, and we say, I, I don't know about this. When I was given the gospel, I was never told about anything about suffering. I was never told anything about a road that was hard to walk on. They just told me to say some things, repeat after me, fell out of car, and they said I was saved. But this is what it means to be Christ-like. And he's not asking for something that he hasn't done himself. It's not he's saying, I'm going to stay up here and you guys live like this, but rather he's shown through an example what it is to be Christ-like. And the question that we have to ask also is: have you ever accepted Christ as your Savior? Have you ever had a moment in your life where you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior so that He, His ransom would be applied to you? So that you would have His righteousness. And so that when God would see you, He wouldn't see your sinfulness, but He would see Christ's righteousness on you. Have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? But what we've seen in this text is that following Christ will lead you to being selfless slave who suffers and serves others. My thing, that's not what I signed up for. I signed up for eternal life and happiness and bless, and, and you're telling me that there's something else. I'm not telling you. It's what Christ says. He says that you have to follow Him just as, a, as He walked to take up your cross and follow after Him. Christ sets the standard, and He's the standard. It's not other people. It's Him. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we look at you know, if we've seen this text and we've contemplated it, we see that the standard is, is very high. But Christ has not asked us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. Thank you that Christ came to be uh, to ransom us, to purchase us, to satisfy your righteousness, so that we could have a relationship with you. Father, if there's anyone here who has never accepted Christ as their Savior, I pray that today will be the day of salvation for them. I pray that today they will want to trust Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Father, I pray for other of us who have been saved and, and maybe our idea of what it was to be a Christian was something other than what Jesus described here. I pray that we can change our expectations and we can accommodate we can put them to what your your word says. In Jesus' name, I pray.